Welcome to the Election Ride Home for Thursday, September 5th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, a single-issue show. We're highlighting the 10 candidates who participated in last night's CNN Climate Town Hall. This is the single most important thing that happened yesterday in the race. So we are going to spend the whole show, and it is a long show, talking about the specific responses we heard from candidates. Here's what you missed last night from the Climate Town Hall. All right, up top, I just want to note this is only the second time we've ever done a single issue show. The first one was a super long explainer episode on Medicare for All. Today, of course, we're looking at what we heard last night at CNN's Climate Town Hall. That event was notable for a bunch of reasons, and one of them was the network gave the candidates basically equal time, about a half hour each, if you cut out the commercials and stuff. There were minor variations, but that's the basic time budget, and they did a surprisingly good job at sticking with it for a live TV event. I think that's important for any candidate forum because it does give the candidates a level playing field for speaking about their positions. The whole event also took place during live coverage of Hurricane Dorian as it slowly approached the east coast of the U.S. Okay, so let's get into the clips and some overall discussion of each candidate. We're going to go in the running order that they appeared on stage. First up, Julian Castro. He set a sober tone on the issue. He spoke about the disproportionate effects of climate change on communities of color and poor communities, which is part of his overall climate plan. I'm going to play you an audio clip, but I had to cut this down for time, and it's his answer to a question by Emily Wilkins, who is a retired teacher and faces paying flood insurance bills that rise by 18% every year. She asked, essentially, what Castro would do for people like her who could lose her home because of the cost of insuring it against floods. Here's a portion of Castro's answer. When I was HUD secretary, I traveled to places like Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and I traveled to uh, the Rockaways and watched as people who had built their entire livelihood, and this was their only asset, really, their home, felt helpless like there was nothing that they could do because they had lost it all. I want to make sure that people are protected, and that's why we would make an investment in the National Flood Insurance Program, not only to make sure that it's around, but to strengthen it and improve it for everyday Americans who need it. And we also recognize that, um, you know, there's a a component of environmental justice at work here, too, because you all know that oftentimes the first folks that get flooded out are the poorest communities, They're often communities of color. They're the ones that can least afford to deal with the climate crisis. I grew up, you know, my brother Joaquin and I grew up on the west side of San Antonio, and um, there were still a lot of streets there, and I'm sure many folks here in the audience can relate to this. There were a lot of places in those neighborhoods that all it had to do was rain a little bit, and people's property would get flooded out. Or they would, you know, the water would start creeping into their garage or their living room, their part of the house. As we experience more storms with more intensity, we need to both take the right steps to prevent climate change so that that won't happen, but then when it does, if it does, to address it, no matter who you are, and make it affordable, in part through that National Flood Insurance Program. I'm committed to doing that. And next up was Andrew Yang. Yang spent his time on stage showing his fun, jokey side while also tackling policy. We rarely get to see Yang on these big media platforms speaking for more than a minute or two at a time. Like, in the debates, he has always been near the bottom of the talk time rankings. So, finally, we got to see a half hour of Yang on a major stage. He talked about geoengineering, he talked about his freedom dividend, 
and other major policies. He also talked about what would become a theme of the evening, which was getting fossil fuel money out of politics. He suggested ending all fossil fuel subsidies and adopting the Freedom Dollars plan that was also embraced by Senator Kirsten Gillibrand before she left the race. That would be a method of election fundraising that could radically reduce corporate influence on campaigns. Anyway, one clip that stood out to me was actually Yang's very first answer. It's a good combination of his approach overall, which is often technological and often includes a dash of history and education, plus it gets a laugh. So listen in, and Wolf Blitzer speaks first. Mr. Yang, so what's the first thing you would do, and welcome to the the CNN, this is a historic town hall, welcome. Uh, What would be the first thing you would do to deal with this climate crisis if you were elected president? Well, the first thing I would do is rejoin the Paris Accords. Uh, We need to let the world know that the U.S. is open for business when fighting climate change uh, is concerned. We want to be the leader. And then I would redefine our economic benchmarks to actually include uh, environmental sustainability. Because right now, the trap that Democrats are in is that we're being told that moving towards a green economy is bad for jobs, it's bad for business. And that couldn't be further from the truth. We actually need to redefine our economic measurements to include clean air and clean water and let America know that. So how do you change that? Well, the great thing is we made up GDP almost 100 years ago. (laughs) Really? And even the inventor of GDP at the time said, this is a terrible measurement for national well-being and we should never use it as that. (laughs) And here we are almost 100 years later following it off a cliff. So all we need to do is, as your president, I will go down the street to the Bureau of Economic Analysis and say, hey, GDP, 100 years old, kind of out of date. Let's upgrade it with a new scorecard that includes our environmental sustainability and our goals, the carbon footprint that companies are putting out there, but also our kids' health, which is tied to the climate, uh, health and life expectancy, also tied to the climate, mental health and freedom from substance abuse. These are all things we can tie to our economic measurements, and then you will see us accelerate in a big way because we can't fall into this trap, this false dichotomy that what's good for the planet is bad for the economy. Then we had Senator Kamala Harris, and she covered an incredible amount of ground in her half hour on stage. She talked about focusing on heavy transport as the first kind of vehicle to electrify across the board, including school buses for kids. She talked about reducing red meat consumption. She talked about single-use plastics and banning plastic straws. She, like every candidate, said she would rejoin the Paris Agreement. But I want to highlight this answer she gave about her experience in the Senate. An audience member named Michael Estrada asked her how she would work in a bipartisan way to address climate change. Well, here's the tail end of his question and how she replied. How will you work across the aisle to support all workers and build trust with Republican constituents dependent on a fossil fuel economy? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing, Michael. I I think that, first of all, let me just tell you, um, I think about this issue through the lens of my baby nieces who are one and a half and three years old. And when I look at those babies and I think about what the world will be like in 20 years if we don't act, I'm really afraid. And as it relates to those Republicans in Congress where I've now been for two and a half years, every one of those members need to look at the babies, the grandbabies in their life, and then look in the mirror and ask themselves, why have they failed to act? Because on the issue of this climate crisis, I'm going to tell you, I strongly believe this is a fight against powerful interests. And leaders need to lead. So lead, follow, or get out the way. And get out the way starting with Donald Trump. 
So, so yeah, we need to work across the aisle. But I'm going to tell you, I've been there now two years and some months. I'm seeing no evidence of it. I'm seeing. I was. I, I kid you guys not. I in the United in our United States Congress, I was part of a committee hearing, during which the underlying premise of the hearing was to debate whether science should be the basis of public policy. <laughs> This on a matter that is about an existential threat to who we are as human beings. So again, back to the United States Congress. Here's my point: If they fail to act as president of the United States, I am prepared. To get rid of the filibuster, to pass a Green New Deal. And then Senator Amy Klobuchar came up. She emphasized her Midwestern roots and that perspective on the issues. She took direct aim at President Trump. She cited Native tribes in some of her answers, and she took a decidedly moderate position on a handful of issues. For instance, she said she would not ban fracking, while Harris, right before her, said she would. Klobuchar was asked about how, as a senator from Minnesota, she would address the beef and dairy industry and its lobbyists' influence on the government. Here's part of her response:、uh, "I am、uh, hopeful、uh, that we're going to be able to do this in a way,、uh, especially when I'm president, that we can continue、uh, to have hamburgers and cheese,、um, but at the same time、um, understand that there are many people that、uh, choose to eat vegan, and that is great too." But let me tell you a little bit about a different perspective on our farmers and what we can do to make them part of the solution,、uh, because I have seen、uh, in rural America、uh, many incredible farmers and、uh, ones that are struggling right now to keep going. And my solution here, and we've done some of it with the farm bill. I'm the only、uh, candidate、um, up here、uh, that has been on the agriculture committee, and I've done that for over a decade. Been through three farm bills, and first of all, the conservation programs. And we've done some good things. We have to do more, and that is everything. They're called CRP, CSP, and EQIP. You don't want to know what they stand for, but they're good for conservation.、Um, the thing that we are doing now, which is really exciting for climate, is by putting incentives out there for. Farmers、um, to for their land to do things that will reduce CO2 in the atmosphere. That's things like. Uh, planting winter cover crops,、um, and it's a pilot program right now. And as president, I would expand it greatly. I think we all know planting trees is a really good thing,、um, and no one can make fun of that because we know the difference that it can make、uh, for a minimal amount of money, not just in the U.S. but across the country. And I would do more and more、uh, with the tools that we have with our farm bill to work with our farmers, including farming methods that require less water,、um, figuring out how we can do this in the way that's best. For the environment, but yet still being able to produce our own food supply,、uh, so we are not dependent on other countries that may not have the same environmental standards that we do. Senator, you know it's interesting.、Okay. And next up was Joe Biden. He was placed right at the 8 p.m. Eastern time slot, the most prime of prime time, and he emphasized his experience as a leader and his experience in Congress. Overall, Biden's message was consistent and fairly simple. He has a long history of dealing with policy, and he feels he can get it done. Here's a clip from early in his time on stage, in which he gets at many of those points related, really, to leadership. Listen in. Would you support、uh, a carbon tax? Other some other candidates said they would. Yeah, no, I, I, I would. But here, here's what we have to do. Look, the bottom line of this is what we have to do is we have to understand that you need to be able to bring people and countries and interests together to get anything done. You can have the plans are great, 
But executing on those plans is a very different thing. We make up, it is the existential threat of not this generation, but the whole world. The existential threat that exists, we don't move on it, number one. You said this is an existential threat. It, it is an existential threat. There is no doubt about that. And the fact of the matter is that we make up 15% of the problem. The rest of the world makes up 80%, 85% of the problem. If we did everything perfectly, everything, and we must and should, in order to get other countries to move, we still have to get the rest of the world to come along. And the fact of the matter is we have to up the ante considerably. And I have great experience in leading coalitions, both at home and internationally. And I think I can do that better than anybody who, uh, no matter what their plans. Well, that's one of the things that President Trump has said about the climate change accord. Uh, the, the agreement is that other countries, even if we do everything right, other countries are not going to be following it, and therefore it's not worth being well, part of Well, he's dead wrong across the board on basically everything, you know? No, I mean, I'm not being facetious. Look, you know, we, we got to start choosing science over, uh, over, over fantasy here. The fact of the matter is that what he did by removing the United States as the leader of the Paris Climate Accord, he in fact dissipated the enthusiasm across the board. The rest of the countries are saying, whoa, wait a minute. Why are we engaged in this if, if the United States is stepping down? We're in a position where when we put that together, and I was the one that suggested to the president, President Obama, I don't want to confuse presidents here, President Obama, that China would be part of this effort. When I came back after a long meeting with Xi Jinping in Beijing, and he, and he was, but here's the deal. The deal is now what's happened is that as we have pulled out, there is no leadership. There is no leadership. I know almost every one of these world leaders. If I were, if I'd been president today, I would have at the G7 made sure this became the topic. There would be no empty chair. I would be pulling the G7 together. I would be down with the president of Brazil saying enough is enough. This is what we're going to do. And this is what's going to happen if you don't do it. This is to bring the world together. Okay, we are now at halftime. Biden was the fifth candidate. Let's take a quick break. You can grab a drink or something and we will be right back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. 
Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. All right, we're back. Next up was Senator Bernie Sanders. He gave firm answers, including a very lengthy explanation of how he would come up with the $16 trillion that his climate plan would require over a period of 15 years. That is, by the way, the highest dollar amount of any climate plan we've seen so far. He firmly rejected nuclear power as an element of the solution to climate change due to his concerns about nuclear safety and long-term storage of nuclear waste. But his breakout moment was this exchange with Anderson Cooper. Listen in. Senator Sanders, uh, just today, the Trump administration announced plans to overturn requirements on energy-saving light bulbs. Uh, It's obviously a move that could increase greenhouse gas emissions. Would you reinstate those requirements as president? (laughs) Look, you know, it is... I guess I should have asked, how fast would you reinstate those requirements? It's fast. Look, one of the great things that's happening, and, and which gives us some hope, is that there has been an explosion in technology in many, many areas, that if we have the political will to utilize that technology... Uh, we can maybe uh, save the planet. And by the way, let me just say this at this point before we get to light bulbs. And that is, everybody in this room knows. I mean, this is a difficult issue. Nobody has a magical solution, I don't. But this is not just an American issue. This is an issue that impacts the entire world. So what I would do, unlike President Trump, who has turned his back on this issue, in fact, made it significantly worse, Uh, by uh, expanding the use of fossil fuel. What I will do, and I'm not here to tell you that I think it will happen like this, but I think it's worth the try, that in this extraordinary moment of global crisis, I think we need a president, hopefully Bernie Sanders, that reaches out to the world, to Russia and China and India, Pakistan, all the countries over the world, and say, guess what? Whether you like it or not, we are all in this together. And if you are concerned about the children in your country and future generations, we're going to have to work together. And maybe, just maybe, instead of spending a trillion and a half dollars every single year on weapons of destruction designed to kill each other, maybe we pool those resources and we work together against our common enemy, which is climate change. And by the way, he did return to the specifics of the light bulb question after that, essentially saying that, yes, he approves of efficient technology. In his words, you know, duh. And then we had Senator Elizabeth Warren, who paced the stage and from my viewing of the event, actually forced CNN into the most dynamic camera movement of the night. They kept having to cut to different angles because she was moving around so much. She was kind of roving around and getting close to the audience. Her key point was that fossil fuel money and its effect on government is a key problem in addressing climate change. She called out corruption among politicians, and she also rejected nuclear power like Sanders. In this clip, Chris Cuomo asks a question, and I think the response here does a great job summing up Warren's overall set of points and attitude toward the issues. So listen in. Today, the president announced plans to roll back energy-saving light bulbs, and he wants to reintroduce four different kinds, which I'm not going to burden you with, but one of them is the candle-shaped ones, and those, those are a favorite for a lot of people, by the way. But do you think that the government should be in the business of telling you what kind of light bulb you can have? Oh, come on. Give me a break. You know... Is that look, a yes? No. Here's... It, look, there are a lot of ways that we try to change our energy consumption and our pollution. And 
God bless all of those ways. Some of it is with light bulbs, some of it is on straws, some of it, dang, is on cheeseburgers, right? There are a lot of different pieces to this, and I get that people are trying to find the part that they can work on and what can they do, and I'm in favor of that, and I'm going to help, and I'm going to support. But understand, this is exactly what the fossil fuel industry hopes we're all talking about. <laughs> That's what they want us to talk about. This is your problem. They want to be able to stir up a lot of controversy around your light bulbs, around your straws, and around your cheeseburgers. When 70% of the pollution, of the carbon that we're throwing into the air, comes from three industries, and we can set our targets and say by 2028, 2030, and 2035, no more. Think about that right there. Now, the other 30% we still got to work on. Oh, no, we don't stop at 70%. But the point is, that's where we need to focus. And why don't we focus there? It's corruption. It's these giant corporations that keep hiring the PR firms that does it. Everybody has fun with it, right? Gets it all out there. So we don't look at who's still making the big bucks of polluting our earth. And the time for that is past. We have a chance, a chance left in 2020 to turn this around. But we are, we are running out of time on this one. So we've got to do this in 2020. And that means the first thing we've got to do is we've got to attack this corruption head on in Washington and say enough of having the oil industry, the fossil fuel industry, write all our laws in this area. No more. No more. Next up, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Now, he was the only member of the millennial generation present at this event, at least on the stage. He went right into talking about his proposal to tax carbon, which would essentially redistribute money from polluters and progressively credit it back to low and middle income citizens. This is part of his detailed plan released yesterday, and it gets at how he would build a coalition to support this work. He talked about social, racial, and gender justice in the context of climate change. I'm going to play two clips here, which add up to roughly the same time as the other candidates got with their single longer clips. Okay, so first, Buttigieg discussed the nature of the challenge and the broad similarities that so many of the candidates have on policy. I think this is really important to call out because there really are a lot of similarities here, at least among this group of 10. The most substantive differences have to do with things like nuclear power, fracking, funding sources for your climate plan, and the specific dates by which certain milestones need to be accomplished. Similar to how Biden talked about this same issue in the context of leadership, it starts to come down to less of the details of the plan and maybe more about whether you think a given candidate would prioritize it and can actually get it done. Okay, so listen in. We have to stand tall and believe that this is something all of us have pride in and can get done, or it's not going to happen. You know, all night, uh, I've been catching at least some of the, uh, the other sessions that have gone on and all of us are basically using the same language. We're talking about existential threat, we're talking about urgency, we're competing over which one of our targets it's more accurate. But the fundamental question is, how are we actually going to get it done? Because we've been having this same conversation for years. I think in order for that to happen, we have to actually unify the country around this project. And that means bringing people to the table who haven't felt that they've been part of the process. I mean, this is the hardest thing we will have done, certainly in my lifetime as a country. This is on par with winning World War II, perhaps even more challenging than that. Does anybody really think we're going to meet that goal? 
if between now and 2050, we are still at each other's throats. It's not going to happen. We've got to figure out a way to rally, and that means everybody from cities to farms to the federal government to the international community. I'm prepared to lead us to get that done. Now, the second clip comes from later on, and it gets right back to the same point. It gets at why government exists in the first place. And this, again, is something that most people don't say out loud, but they probably need to. Because not everybody took a civics class like in the last few years, right? Okay, Chris Cuomo speaks first in this one. Listen in. Question from David Lowe, a retired religion professor from Flowertown, Pennsylvania. David. Mayor Pete, thank you for being here with us. Um, it's not all big business's fault. So car companies manufacture gas guzzlers and ranchers raise livestock because we will buy their products. Do you model the kinds of spending changes that consumers need to adopt? I try to do, yeah, I try to do the right thing. Uh, I think about this when I'm making decisions as a consumer. Uh, before life changed a little bit for me, I tried to bike to work whenever I could as, as mayor in South Bend. Uh, but the reality is no individual can be expected single-handedly to solve this problem. It's going to require national action. And by the way, this is why we, and I, by we I mean like the human species, invented government. It's for dealing with issues that are too big for each of us to deal all acting on our own. This is the perfect use case for good government decisions. All right, let's keep rolling along. Next up, and now we're getting close to 11 p.m. Eastern time for this, but some of us were just barely hanging on. Former Representative Beto O'Rourke took the stage, managing to retain some energy despite the late hour. Now, remember, O'Rourke released his climate plan way back in April, and it was in fact his first big detailed policy proposal. Now, he wasn't the only one to release a climate plan before this week, but he is firmly in the half of the group who released a plan proactively and early. If you want a summary of the later plans, check out yesterday's show. I also dug into O'Rourke's plan way back on April 29th of this year. Among many other things last night, O'Rourke gave a shout-out to statehood for Puerto Rico, suggesting that if that territory actually had representation in the Senate, that might allow them to advocate in a meaningful way for disaster relief funding and effective climate policies overall. So, here's the clip I want to play. Don Lemon speaks first, introducing a question from the audience. And what you hear is essentially O'Rourke doing his recent connect the dots stuff pertinent to President Trump and how the cascade of policies in politics are all tied together. Listen in. All right, let's continue on with the audience questions here. Standing in front of you is Juliana Hasi de Camargo. She lives in Washington, D.C., where she works as a fellow at the Sunrise Movement, a youth climate change uh, a chairman, excuse me, uh, at the Climate Change Advocacy Group. Juliana, what do you have? I'm from Brazil, and I immigrated to various countries before coming to the United States. I witnessed the climate crisis in each country I've lived in, from droughts in Angola, from flash floods in Brazil, um, to contaminated water in Ecuador, and extreme weather in the U.S. Now the Amazon is being burned. Mm. A big incentive for deforestation comes from U.S. investors in the Brazilian meat industry. Mm. How will you use U.S. trade leverage to encourage Brazil to protect these vital resources and the indigenous people who live there? Great question. Juliana, thank you for the question and also thank you for 
your leadership on this. You and other members of the Sunrise Movement are going to be the ones who are going to receive the credit for this change that we're talking about today. You, you have forced those in positions of power and those who seek positions of public trust to do the right thing and to address these issues. So you mentioned our involvement and investment in Brazil. This is one of the pernicious outcomes of Donald Trump's trade policies, this trade war with China that has not only closed markets that farmers in Iowa and across this country have worked their entire lives to open up. It's not only put them further in debt at a time of declining farm incomes, it is providing an incentive for people to burn down the Amazon rainforest, to plant soybeans so that they can sell into China because China right now is looking for new, new sellers, uh, new producers for those soybeans that they are no longer buying from the United States of America. So our trade policies, our leadership, the blown opportunities at the G7 summit to convene those other top wealthy economies to make sure that this is our focus to save the lungs of the planet that produce six percent of the oxygen that we breathe and to ensure that we do not trigger a crisis in the amazon once it is set we will never be able to roll back um, this is our opportunity that is the threat that we face and so we must be an international leader on these issues and to close out the night, Senator Cory Booker, who is the only vegan candidate, walked on stage at 11.22 p.m. Eastern Time. The very first thing he did was thank the audience, which had been sitting there for, at that point, more than four hours, patiently listening and asking questions. Booker said that he would integrate climate into every department within his administration and use climate as the lens through which he examined various issues and policies. He discussed agriculture policy and all sorts of other stuff. And then Don Lemon brought it around to the vegan thing. Now, I'm going to cut out the first few minutes of that discussion because it's partly about agricultural policy and partly just jokes about veganism that just aren't pertinent to this discussion. But I want you to listen to how Booker manages to work in a discussion of healthy food, factory farming, economic justice, and environmental justice within the context of a climate change discussion. This is a key example of what it means to view an issue through the lens of climate. Listen in. And so this is something I'm sorry. I I'm not going to be a president that's giving tax breaks to people who are polluting folks, causing cancers, destroying our environment as well. And so let me tell you where we've got to go as a country. We, freedom is one of the most sacred values. Whatever you want to eat, go ahead and eat it. But when I come to you right now from the only person in this entire campaign, only person in the Senate that lives in an inner city, black and brown, low-income community. You know what we're furious about in my community, communities all across this country, is that we don't have access to fresh and healthy foods. We live in food deserts. There's a guy. You would love this guy. And you should interview him. He's a, one of the best TED Talks I've listened to. Is a guy named Ron Finley. They call him the Gorilla Gardener. He's producing for me now. Yes, you should. You should. He, he has this saying in, about South Central. He says, in South Central, we have drive-bys and drive-throughs. And more people are getting killed by the drive-throughs than the drive-bys. Hmm. We, we live in a country right now, and we battled this when I was mayor. We got our first supermarkets built in decades. Uh, we turned entire city blocks into urban gardens, gave guys coming home, men and women coming home from prison, jobs on the farms, had help with our heat uh, uh, island that we had, all helping our environment, but giving access to fresh and healthy foods. Because I'm sorry, corporations like McDonald's, who oppress their workers, do not pay living wages, and are the only option in communities feeding things to folks that are making them ill, that is not a healthy food system. If I am your president, all of these issues 
Already in the first 10 minutes, we've talked about corporate corruption, campaign finance, uh, agriculture, uh, environmental justice. All of these things are interrelated. You can't separate them out. And so I'm going to be the president that says, when we talk about healthcare, let's not just talk about doctors and nurses. Let's talk about healthy food systems and the toxins that are in our community. And so I will always be about the freedom to eat what you want. But we are going to have to make sure our government is not subsidizing the things that make us sick and unhealthy and hurt our environment. And it starts to incentivize the practices that get farming and get agriculture and get the health of our communities back. We need to especially be looking at communities that are low income and vulnerable and investing in those communities so that they can have health and well-being as well. I want to talk about, uh, talk about nuclear energy. Well, that is it for one more episode of the Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. This show is already way longer than usual, so I'm going to let you get back to your day. Check the links in the show notes for more from CNN. Each of these candidates spent around 30 minutes on stage, so there is a lot more to digest if you want to dig in. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to you all tomorrow.